It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 7 of The Four Feathers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Becky Cook. The Four Feathers by A.E.W. Mason. Chapter 7. The Last Reconnaissance. No one, said Durrance, and he strapped his field glasses into the leather case at his side. No one, sir, Captain Mather agreed. We will move forward. The scouts went on ahead. The troops resumed their formation. The two seven-pounder mountain-guns closed up behind, and Durrance's detachment of the Camel Corps moved down from the gloomy ridge of Khor Gwab, thirty-five miles southwest of Suakin, into the plateau of Sinkat. It was the last reconnaissance in strength before the evacuation of the eastern Sudan. All through that morning the camels had jolted slowly up the gully of shale, between red precipitous rocks, and when the rocks fell back, between red mountain-heaps all crumbled into a desolation of stones. Hardly a patch of grass or the ragged branches of a mimosa had broken the monotony of ruin. And after that arid journey, the green bushes of Sinkat in the valley below comforted the eye with the pleasing aspect of a park. The troopers sat their saddles with a greater alertness. They moved in a diagonal line across the plateau towards the mountains of Erkowit, a silent company on a plain still more silent. It was eleven o'clock. The sun rose toward the center of a colorless, cloudless sky. The shadows of the camel shortened upon the sand, and the sand itself glistened white as the beach of the Scilly Islands. There was no draught of air that morning to whisper amongst the rich foliage, and the shadows of the branches lay so distinct and motionless upon the ground that they might themselves have been strewn there on some past day by a storm. The only sounds that were audible were the sharp clank of weapons, the soft, ceaseless padding of the camel's feet and at times the whirr of a flight of pigeons disturbed by the approaching cavalcade. Yet there was life on the plateau, though of a noiseless kind, for as the leaders rode along the curves of sand, trim and smooth between the shrubs like carriage drives, they would see from time to time, far ahead of them, a herd of gazelles start up from the ground and race silently, a flash of dappled brown and white to the enclosing hills. It seemed that here was a country during this last hour created. Yet this way the caravans passed southwards to Erkowit and the Khor Baraka. Here the Suakis built their summer-houses, said Durrance, answering the thought in his mind. And there Tufik fought and died with his four hundred men, said Mather, pointing forward. For three hours the troops marched across the plateau. It was the month of May, and the sun blazed upon them with an intolerable heat. They had long since lost their alertness. 
They rode rocking drowsily in their saddles and prayed for the evening and the silver shine of stars. For three hours the camels went mincing on with their queer smirking motions of the head, and then quite suddenly a hundred yards ahead Durant saw a broken wall with window spaces which let the sky through. "'The fort,' said he. Three years had passed since Osmond Digna had captured and destroyed it, but during these three years its roofless ruins had sustained another siege, and one no less persistent. The quick-growing trees had so closely girt, and encroached upon it to the rear and to the right and to the left, that the traveller came upon it unexpectedly, as child Roland upon the dark tower in the plain. In the front, however, the sand still stretched open to the wells, where three great gemiza trees of dark and spreading foliage stood spaced like sentinels. In the shadow to the right front of the fort, where the bushes fringed the open sand with the level regularity of a river-bank, the soldiers unsaddled the camels and prepared their food. Durrance and Captain Mather walked around the fort, and as they came to the southern corner, Durrance stopped. Hello, said he. "'Some Arab has camped here,' said Mather, stopping in his turn. The grey ashes of a wood-fire lay in a little heap upon a blackened stone. "'And lately,' said Durrance. Mather walked on, mounted a few rough steps to the crumbled archway of the entrance, and passed into the unroofed corridors and rooms. Durrance turned the ashes over with his boot. The stump of a charred and whitened twig glowed red. Durrance set his foot upon it, and a tiny thread of smoke spurted into the air. "'Very lately,' he said to himself, and he followed Mather into the fort. In the corners of the mud-walls, in any fissure, in the very floor, young trees were sprouting. Rearward, a steep glacis and a deep foss defended the works. Durrance sat himself down upon the parapet of the wall above the glacis, while the pigeons wheeled and circled overhead thinking of the long months during which Tufik must daily have strained his eyes from this very spot toward the pass over the hills from Suakin, looking as that other general far to the south had done, for the sunlight flashing on the weapons of the help which did not come. Mather sat by his side and reflected in quite another spirit. Already the guards are steaming out through the coral reefs toward Suez. A week and our turn comes, he said. What a God-forsaken country! I come back to it said Durrance. Why? I like it. I like the people. Mather thought the taste unaccountable, but he knew nevertheless that, however unaccountable in itself, it accounted for his companion's rapid promotion and success. Sympathy had stood Durrance in the stead of much ability. Sympathy had given him patience and the power to understand, so that during these three years of campaign he had left far quicker and far abler men behind him, in his knowledge of the sorely harassed tribes of the eastern Sudan. He liked them. He could enter into their hatred of the old Turkish rule. He could understand their fanaticism, and their pretense of fanaticism under the compulsion of Osman Digna's hordes. "'Yes, I shall come back,' he said, "'and in three months' time. For one thing, we know—every Englishman in Egypt, too, knows—that this can't be the end. I want to be here when the work's taken in hand again.' I hate unfinished things. The sun beat relentlessly upon the plateau. The men, stretched in the shade, slept. The afternoon was as noiseless as the morning. Durrance and Mather sat for some while compelled to silence by the silence surrounding them, but Durrance's eyes turned at last from the amphitheatre of hills. They lost their abstraction. They became intently fixed upon the shrubbery beyond the glacis. He was no longer recollecting Tufik Bay and his heroic defence. 
or speculating upon the work to be done in the years ahead. Without turning his head, he saw that Mather was gazing in the same direction as himself. "'What are you thinking about?' he asked suddenly of Mather. Mather laughed and answered thoughtfully. "'I was drawing up the menu the first dinner I will have when I reach London. I will eat it alone, I think, quite alone, and at the epito. It will begin with the watermelon. And you?' "'I was wondering why, now that the pigeons have got used to our presence, they should still be wheeling in and out of one particular tree.' Don't point to it, please. I mean the tree beyond the ditch, and to the right of the two small bushes. All about them they could see the pigeons quietly perched upon the branches, spotting the foliage like a purple fruit. Only above the one tree they circled and timorously called. We will draw that covert, said Durrance. Take a dozen men, and surround it quietly. He himself remained on the glacis watching the tree and the thick undergrowth. He saw six soldiers creep round the shrubbery from the left, six more from the right, but before they could meet and ring the tree in he saw the branches violently shaken, and an Arab with a roll of yellowish damar wound about his waist, and armed with a flat-headed spear and a shield of hide, dashed from the shelter and raced out between the soldiers into the open plain. He ran for a few yards only, for Mather gave a sharp order to his men, and the Arab, as though he understood that order, came to a stop before a rifle could be lifted to his shoulder. He walked quietly back to Mather. He was brought up on to the glacis, where he stood before Durrance without insolence or servility. He explained in Arabic that he was a man of the Kebabish tribe named Abu Fatma, and friendly to the English. He was on his way to Suakin. "'Why did you hide?' asked Durrance. "'Twas safer. I knew you for my friends, but, my gentleman, did you know me for years?' Then Durrance said quickly, "'You speak English?' And Durrance spoke in English. The answer came without hesitation. I know a few words. Where did you learn them? In Khartoum. Thereafter he was left alone with Durrance on the glacis, and the two men talked together for the best part of an hour. At the end of that time the Arab was seen to descend the glacis, cross the trench, and proceed toward the hills. Durrance gave the order for the resumption of the march. The water tanks were filled. The men replenished their zamshias knowing that of all thirst in this world the afternoon thirst is the very worst, saddled their camels and mounted to the usual groaning and snarling. The detachment moved north-westward from Sinquet, at an acute angle to its morning's march. It skirted the hills opposite to the pass from which it had descended in the morning. The bushes grew sparse. It came into a black country of stones, scantily relieved by yellow-tasseled mimosas. Durrance called Mather to his side. That Arab had a strange story to tell me. He was Gordon's servant in Khartoum, at the beginning of 1884, eighteen months ago, in fact. Gordon gave him a letter which he was to take to Berber, whence the contents were to be telegraphed to Cairo. But Berber had just fallen when the messenger arrived there. He was seized upon and imprisoned the day after his arrival. But during the one day which he had free, he hid the letter in the wall of a house, and so far as he knows, it has not been discovered." He would have been questioned if it had been, said Mather. Precisely, and he was not questioned. He escaped from Berber at night three weeks ago. The story is curious, eh? And the letter still remains in the wall? It is curious. Perhaps the man was telling lies. He had the chain mark on his ankles, said Durrance. The cavalcade turned to the left into the hills on the northern side of the plateau, and climbed again over shale. A letter from Gordon said Durrance in a musing voice. 
scribbled perhaps upon the rooftop of his palace by the side of his great telescope a sentence written in haste and his eye again to the land searching over the palm trees for the smoke of the steamers and it comes down to the nile to be buried in a mud wall in berber yes it's curious and he turned his face to the west and the sinking sun even as he looked the sun dipped behind the hills the sky above his head darkened rapidly to violet in the west it famed a glory of colors rich and iridescent the colors lost their violence and blended delicately into one rose hue the rose lingered for a little and fading in its turn left a sky of the purest emerald green transfused with light from beneath rim of the world if only they had let us go last year westward to the nile he said with a sort of passion before khartoum had fallen before berber had surrendered but they would not the magic of the sunset was not at all in durance's thoughts the story of the letter had struck upon a chord of reverence within him he was occupied with the history of that honest great impracticable soldier who despised by officials and thwarted by intrigues a man of few ties and much loneliness had gone unflaggingly about his work knowing the while that the moment his back was turned the work was in an instant all undone darkness came upon the troops the camels quickened their pace the cicadas shrilled from every tuft of grass the detachment moved down toward the well of Disabil. Durrance lay long awake that night on his camp bedstead, spread out beneath the stars. He forgot the letter in the mud wall. Southward the southern cross hung slanting in the sky. Above him glittered the curve of the great bear. In a week he would sail for England. He would lay awake, counting up the years since the packet had cast off from Dover Pier, and he found that the tale of them was good. Kassassin, tell El Kabir the rush down the Red Sea, to Kar, to Mai, to Minib. The crowded moments came vividly to his mind. He thrilled even now at the recollection of the Hayden Dawas leaping and stabbing through the breach of McNeil's Zariba six miles from Suakin. He recalled the obdurate defences of the Berkshires, the steadiness of the Marines, the rallying of the broken troops. The years had been good years, years of plenty, years which had advanced him to the brevet rank of lieutenant-colonel. A week more— only a week murmured mather drowsily i shall come back said durrance with a laugh have you no friends and there was a pause yes i have friends i shall have three months wherein to see them durrance had written no word to harry feversham during these years not to write letters was indeed a part of the man correspondence was a difficulty to him he was thinking now that he would surprise his friends by a visit to donegal or he might find them perhaps in London. He would ride once again in the row, but in the end he would come back, for his friend was married, and to Ethne Eustace, and as for himself his life's work lay here in the Sudan. He would certainly come back. And so, turning on his side, he slept dreamlessly while the host of the stars trampled across the heavens above his head. End of chapter 7